Our sermon text this morning is a very short one. It's Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Proverbs 9, verse 10. You have just enough time to stand up and sit right back down. Right? Proverbs 9, verse 10, give ear to the word of God. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This uh, ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O Lord, stands forever. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, teach us your word, sanctify your saints by your truth, because your word is truth, and even save the lost by the power of your word and your spirit working through it. For we ask all these things in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the fear of the Lord, uh, it's a a phrase we uh, probably hear and read who knows how many times in your Christian life. We speak of uh, fearing God and of God-fearing people. Uh, You might know the scriptures speak of the fear of the Lord, using that phrase, uh, among other things. Uh, Just that phrase alone, the fear of the Lord, occurs dozens of times in the scriptures. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. In fact, Uh, The book of Proverbs, that phrase shows up no less than 14 times throughout the book. You know, people sometimes uh, talk as if the book of Proverbs is just some kind of uh, wisdom for life. It is wisdom literature, but sometimes we act like it's just kind of helpful advice, you know, practical tips for for, for life, which when you read through it, there's a lot of things that read that way. Like if you were to take some of the verses from Proverbs and share them with a friend at work or somewhere that doesn't know the Bible and doesn't know it's from the Bible, you could just tell them you wouldn't probably do this. But I was reading this book, and it's very helpful about you know how we should live and what we should do. And they'd, they'd hear it and go, oh, that sounds really great. And then you go, by the way, it's from the Bible. Oh, you know, we, we act like it's some kind of secular, almost uh, helpful tips. But uh, people act like it's not a theological document, like, it is, like God is not really that much in it, and yet... When you read the book of Proverbs, there's all kinds of things in it that point us to God, that point us even to Christ. But in particular, it talks about the fear of God multiple times, at least 14 times in the book. Uh, John Murray, a great old Presbyterian theologian, uh, calls the fear of God, quote, the soul of godliness. And further states, he says, if we are thinking of the notes of biblical piety, None is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord. If you want a, a brief summary of what a Christian character should, should look like, of what godliness should look like, you could, you could do a lot worse than just saying the fear of God. The fear of God should characterize every believer. Last Sunday... Uh, We were reading in our scripture reading through Psalm 119. You might remember that twice in that in that passage we looked at in Psalm 119 verses 74 and 79. David referred to those who fear you talking to God. And when he used that phrase, who was he referring to? He was referring to believers, to the people, his fellow people of God. He's he's using that phrase to refer to God's people, those who fear you as opposed to those who don't, to the wicked. You might remember in the, the, the Lord's parable of the persistent widow, or sometimes it's called the parable of the unjust judge. 
Uh, he describes that unjust or unrighteous judge in the judge's own words. It's a parable, but the judge is kind of talking to himself about the situation. And he describes himself as neither fearing God nor regarding or respecting man. That's what made him an unjust judge. In other words, what would an unjust judge do? He judged not only unjustly, but he'd do that because he was an unjust man. And what, what, what made him an unjust man was he didn't fear God. He didn't care about what's really right and wrong. We see a lot of that in our own country, in our government, and elsewhere uh, today. But that was a parable that has a lot of reality to it. Uh, but the reason he couldn't be counted on to do what was right was because he did not fear God or regard man. The only reason, remember why he gave her justice at the end? To get her to stop bothering him. And God used that, not that we bother God in prayer, but he used that as an illustration, an argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if an unjust judge will finally give in when you, to keep somebody from bothering him, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, how much greater is God if we keep persisting in prayer to him that he'll give us the things that we need uh, when we pray for them? Uh, in Romans, Romans chapter 3, you might know Romans 3, uh, that's the part of, of the old of the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul, uh, what is his point in most of that chapter? In that chapter, he is establishing from the Old Testament, in many places from the Psalms and elsewhere, the, the reality and the truth of the doctrine of total depravity, the total depravity of mankind in Adam. And what does he do to cap that section off? What does he say at the end of the whole section in Romans 3, when he talks about none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good, no, not one. What's the last thing he says? He quotes or cites Psalm 36.1 saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, what is the, the best, in some ways, summary of unbelief and wickedness? You'd be hard-pressed to find a better summary than just the simple idea of they don't fear God. They don't fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You might know uh, in our own day, the entire month of June that we are just starting is now celebrated seemingly everywhere you look as Pride Month. And that is nothing but a celebration of wickedness and perversion. It's nothing less than an open mocking of God. In public, given the public in your face nature of many of these celebrations, it is sad testimony, among other things, uh, that it is increasingly true that in our nation there is no fear of God before our eyes. If there's fear of God, we don't do these things. We certainly don't celebrate them openly uh, the way that it's been been done. There is less and less fear of God, of the fear of God in our in our nation, and even in the church. Likewise, it's not only not only is ungodliness characterized by a lack of fear of God, but as we saw from Dr. Murray's quote, the fear of God in many ways is the essence of godliness. At the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you might know this, maybe you've had this memorized, some of you, the very end of the book, the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this, the end of the matter all has been heard. He's made his case. This is his closing argument restating the main point of the book in many ways. The end of the matter, all has, been, all has been heard here it is, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the what? The whole duty of man. 
If you want to know a summary of what God wants you to do, how he wants you to live, you can look at the Ten Commandments, but also behind that, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I think we sometimes, I know I do, we sometimes kind of gloss right over that last phrase. Not just the bad things, but the good things. God will openly reward the good done in secret at the last day, in addition to punishing every evil that was done even in secret, because nothing is secret to God. If you and I truly fear God, it will show, it will demonstrate itself in how we live, especially in our making every effort uh, of living in faith and trying to keep God's commandments, even when no one is there except God to see it. So this morning what I'd like to do is look briefly at what the scriptures have to say about this subject, about the fear of God. We want to see at least briefly what is it? What does it mean to fear God? We want to see the importance of fearing God because what does our text say? The fear of God is what? The beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of God, we have no claim, no rightful claim to even the smallest beginnings of wisdom at all. And then lastly and thirdly and lastly, how that wisdom, how that fear of God should affect our lives in a great many ways. So the first thing is we want to know and be clear on what the fear of God is. What does it mean to fear God? What does it not mean? We, you know, these are, this is one of those phrases I'm guessing that a lot of us, we, we've used it before, we've certainly heard it before, but we don't give a lot of thought in how to define what it is. We sort of assume that we know or presume that we know what that phrase is. Is and if that if, if fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, it certainly would behoove us greatly to be sure that we understand just what it means to fear the Lord. And so, there are any number of ways that you could define it uh, helpfully. And here's just a few. There's a book recently came out by Joel Beakey and Michael Barrett called "A Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness." There's a title, uh, and uh, Barrett is one of the co-authors. In his one of the sections, he writes he writes this. He says, because the fear of God is such an all-pervasive component of true religion, it relates directly to obeying God's call to holiness. So the whole chapter on the fear of God in the book, very helpful. He says, in essence, to fear God is to live in the conscious awareness of God as he has revealed himself in holiness, factoring him into every situation and circumstance of life. Living in the fear of God is living in the reality of God. Recognizing and acknowledging God for who he is demands the response of fearing him. So living in the fear of God is living in the reality of God. Living in light of it. In the knowledge of it as you go throughout throughout the day doing whatever you do in your life. His commentary in the book of Proverbs, Charles Bridges notes that for the believer, the fear of the Lord, to which the writer of Proverbs is enjoining us to to follow, he calls it that fear of the Lord is, is, quote, that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Catch that? That affectionate reverence for God by which we humbly... Uh, and carefully bend our knee to our Father's law. In other words, it's, it's got the dual aspect of both fear and love. And it's the fear and love somewhat very much like what we have for our earthly fathers, just to a greater degree. There are different aspects of the fear of God. 
Uh, many today are in the habit of avoiding the phrase altogether. In fact, uh, very often, even in translations of the scriptures, you'll see that term uh, replaced, because fear sounds so negative, with the term reverence. That's not wrong, but I don't think we do ourselves any favor when we just re, uh, reword things instead of just realizing what the word actually means and using the word properly. Um, you know, we, we're, we, we're afraid of giving offense by using the word fear at times. Uh, for the wicked and the unrepentant, those who have not repented of their sin and turned to Christ, there is a sense in which the fear of God should rightly evoke a sense of fear in the sense of terror, not just reverence. You know, I, I won't say what the movie was, but years ago I saw a movie, and every once in a while there's a line that sticks out, and there wasn't much about this movie that stuck out, but this one line stuck in my head, and it was this mother talking to her daughter, her adult daughter, who was having some self-esteem problems, so-called, and her mom looked at her and said, Honey, you know, for you, bad self-esteem is just good common sense. You know, which isn't a very kind thing, thing to say. But, but in, in a similar way, for those who are outside of Christ and have not repented of their sin, the sense of the fear of God really should invoke a sense of terror, not just reverence. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There it is again, good or evil, right? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The King James Version of, of that verse renders it more forcefully. It renders it as th like this. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He's talking about evangelism. He's talking about reaching out to them with the gospel of Christ that they might repent and believe unto salvation. You might remember in, in the gospels there was a story, an account of Jesus in the boat with some of his disciples and they're crossing uh, the sea. And what happens? A great storm hits. And what happened? It uses the word terrified. They were terrified of the storm. And where's Jesus? He's in the back of the boat sleeping. And what do they do? If you, know the, if you know what happens in this account, they go back, they wake him up. I'm paraphrasing here. You know, Lord, don't you care that we die? You're sitting back here sawing logs. You know, what's going on? And he gets up, and you almost picture him as being annoyed, although it's hard to picture Jesus being annoyed. And he just says, you know, peace, you know, stop. And what happens to the storm? And the water becomes like glass. And what happened? Did, did their terror go away? When that happened, if you know the story, it says they were even more terrified. They went from being terrified of the storm to being terrified of the one who was sleeping in the back of the boat. Because they started realizing who he is. They started understanding more and more, like, that's not normal. You know, good rabbis don't stop the forces of nature with a word. He's, he's not just a man. He's not just uh, a prophet. He's much more than that. You might remember... The story of the demoniac the, in, in, the, uh, in the cemetery breaking chains and, and scaring people. And, and he runs up to Jesus and, and bows at his feet. Jesus cast the demons out. Now remember, what was, what was the, the city, the people that lived there? Their, their reaction to the demoniac, rightly so, you would be too, was terror. When Jesus healed the demoniac and, and cast the demons, remember Legion, out of those out of him into the pigs, and they, the swine went down into the hill and, and killed themselves in the water. What, what was the reaction of the people? Please leave. 
They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of him. Why? Because Jesus just showed how much powerful, how powerful he was and how holy he was. He gave a hint of who he was, that he was the Lord of glory, and they were terrified even more. You know, the knowledge of God's infinite holiness, his omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere present, his omniscience, that he knows all things, and the judgment to come ought to stir up, and even the most hardened unbeliever, a sense of profound unease and dread, even terror. This would be just good sense, even if it's not common sense. The fact that it doesn't do so in so many occasions is just more testimony to the awful reality of total depravity and, and the fact that everybody outside of Christ is yet dead in sin outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Why is it that many in every age, even inside the, you know, the church, the visible church, seem to keep themselves so constantly occupied, distracted, entertained, and numbed to the reality of, of God, the reality of death, and the judgment to come, except that they don't want to face the truth of these things. You know, we live in an age where people do everything they can to avoid any serious thought, any serious self-reflection, uh, any serious self-examination. Uh, people, by and large, in our day, it's, my, it's been my observation, it's anecdotal at best, but people don't go to funerals. They avoid funerals and memorial services, or sometimes, or sometimes they rename them, because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to think about it when they really need to do, do so. And you know, we in the church, you know, we do them no favors by turning the worship of God into entertainment to keep them distracted even while they're at church. What does the writer of the book of Hebrews say in chapter 12? He says, let, you know, let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable to whom? To God. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. And what does that worship look like? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The King James puts it this way, with reverence and godly fear. The fear of the Lord is even to be, in some ways, characteristic of our worship together on the Lord's Day. That doesn't mean it's a dreary worship service. I hope that's not what you think. But, but the fear of God should be reflected even in our worship as well as in our lives. Now, for, what about for the believer? For the believer in Christ, the fear of God is not in any way at odds with love for God. Any more than fear of our earthly fathers should be in any way contrary to love for them as well for the Christian who is now a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are still both to fear and love God. Now, our fear is no longer a terror of God. It's not that kind of, it's not being afraid of God. It's being fearful and loving God. This is not a servile terror, but a godly fear and reverence that a child should have for his father. Charles, Bridge again put, Charles Bridges rather puts it again this way. He says, it, that's the fear of the Lord, it is the genuine spirit of adoption. Uh, the child of God has only one dread to offend his father, only one desire to please and delight in him. It's, it's a sign of your adoption in Christ that you now love and fear God in a godly way. It's a desire to please our heavenly father and a healthy fear of displeasing him in any way so that we earnestly strive after holiness which Hebrews tells us, without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. 
Well, the next thing you want to see in our text is, is the importance of the fear of the Lord. And what does our text say? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You might know that uh, in the first chapter of, he, of, of the book of Proverbs, it says nearly the same thing, slightly different in wording. Proverbs 1.7 says, likewise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then it says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. You know, no matter how intelligent, how learned, how educated a person is otherwise, without the fear of God, such a person doesn't even have the very beginning or even the smallest part of true wisdom and knowledge. You know, when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it means that the fear of the Lord is the source and the start of even the smallest beginnings of, of wisdom and knowledge. You might be the most successful person that you know. You may have everything that this world affords a person in this life. You may have all the power, all the prestige, all the possessions, all the know-how, all the knowledge in the world. Uh, you may be an expert in all kinds of things, but without the fear of the Lord, it's all for nothing. It's less than nothing. It might, might do you some good in this life, but ultimately it does nothing for you. For God has made all things, and God has made all things for himself. Remember what Paul says in Romans 11.36, he says, for, uh, for, him, for from him and through him, and what's the last one? And to him or for him, are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Proverbs 16.4 also says this, The Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil, or for the evil day. That's the King James Version of Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made all things, we get that, but he says he's made all things for himself. Even the wicked for the day of evil. The most important thing in one's life is one's relationship to God and being made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To go through your life as if God did not exist, as if he does not see all things, and as if he will not call all things into account on the last day is the height of foolishness. Solomon adds, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight or understanding in the second half of our text. Now the word translated as the Holy One, the ESV puts that in capital letters, I believe, uh, to indicate that they, the translators believe that's referring to Christ. The word translated as Holy One there is actually plural, and so it could be translated as Holy Ones, Holy Things. Some have suggested even the word saints, which that's what that word, that's what saints means, Holy Ones. Uh, the King James renders it simply as the Holy as, uh, as, as the holy, which is it's a subtle way of putting a plural. Uh, is this an Old Testament allusion or hint of Jesus Christ, who is called the Holy One of God, even the Messiah? I believe it may be. I think there's a reason that many translations render it that way. It would certainly be fitting here, the fear of the Lord, in a general sense, without faith in Jesus Christ, uh, falls short of, of what we would think of as wisdom, biblically speaking. Jesus Knowing Jesus, the Bible says, is the definition of eternal life. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. What is it? They may know you, the only true God, and what? Who? Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's the definition or substance of eternal life. And so 
This morning I ask, are you trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation from sin? That's the true measure of understanding is knowledge of the Holy One. Knowledge, really knowing Christ as Savior and as your Lord. Without that, you know or understand really ultimately nothing the way that you need to do. Without Christ, you are unprepared for eternity. For you're still in your sins and under the wrath of God abiding on you. If you're outside of Christ, may God open your eyes that you may learn to fear God in such a way that you repent of your sins and turn to Christ by faith for salvation and eternal life. Well, last but not least, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is also known by its fruits in our lives. As we saw earlier back in that quote from Ecclesiastes 12, to fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. In other words, the one must follow the other if it's genuine. Fearing God and keeping his commandments uh, go, go together. The one follows after the other or it's not really the fear of God. We can say we fear God. We can say that we have the fear of the Lord. But if we're not seeking to obey his commandments by faith, then it's just talk. We don't really fear God after all. If we're not seeking to keep God's commandments, then we don't fear God regardless of what we have to say or profess that we believe. The fear of the Lord should motivate us to obey God's commandments, just as love for the Lord does, because those two things are related, fearing God and loving him. The fear of the Lord includes both the desire to please God and our Heavenly Father, as well as the dread of displeasing him. That, that fear of God is a powerful motive for the pursuit of holiness or sanctification, or it should be. You know, if, think of it as, you know, in a, in a lesser sense. You know, we, we don't all have good earthly fathers, but we know what a good earthly father should look like. Even those of us who haven't had them, somehow we know what a good father is supposed to look like and what we're supposed to do, even if we haven't had one or even if we haven't been one. Um, but what do you do? You know, you, you want to please your father. A good father does what when his son or daughter does well? You reward them. In many ways, even if it's just approval, a nod, a smile, a pat on the back or whatever, it's in a, in a greater sense. We look for those blessings and rewards by grace from God in the same way. You know, the old saying, you don't hear it too many times. Easy. Wait till your father gets home when you do something wrong and your father chastises you or disciplines you. He doesn't normally throw you out of the family, right? He's not saying you're not you're no longer my son. No, he's training you for your own good. That also is his fatherly care. And in a greater sense, God himself does that as well. And so there is a, there is a healthy fear of chastisement uh, that every Christian should have. And that should be, it shouldn't be the only motive. But it is, it is a godly motive for obeying our Heavenly Father that we do not want to suffer his fatherly displeasure. We, we don't want the switch or the rod. We want, we want the blessings and the rewards in the same way, uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's not just an Old Testament thing, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. In his book, he has a book called, Mark, called God Is. Mark Jones writes this, a Christian fear of God keeps his awesome nature before our eyes, continually reminding us of his presence everywhere. He sees us, take, takes note of us, 
and most importantly dwells in us for our sanctification. It's just living in light, as the other writer said, of God's, the reality of God in his presence. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest needs I believe that we have of this hour is that as God's people in Christ, we must learn to cultivate within us a right and proper sense of the fear of God in our lives. We must learn, I think, more and more, even as Ecclesiastes says there, to fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of God involves, again, both loving him and revering him so that we want to please our Heavenly Father in all things, as well as that dread of displeasing him, which mars our communion with God. You know, that, that's what this table that we're going to be coming to in a moment is about. You know, we, we talk about union and communion with God. Baptism is the sacrament of union with Christ, of being joined to him and being you're baptized into Christ. It's a symbol of what the Holy Spirit does when he makes you alive and unites him uh, to Christ by faith. Well, in a similar way, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of communion. Communion is the, is, is the maintaining and growing of that relationship, of keeping it strong uh, and, and, and good and growing. And so that's, that's what this sacrament is about. It's, it's a sacrament of communion, of, of staying in God's good graces in some ways, staying in the favor of God, not, um, not just dealing with his chastisement. Uh, and so you know, the fear of God involves both loving him and revering him so that we want to please him, as well as not wanting to displease him because we don't want to mar or damage in any way our communion with God, our fellowship with him. Uh, and, and, at, and at times, what does God do? You know, Hebrews talks about God disciplining his children. Not a pleasant thing. It's one of those chapters you read and you kind of, go to the next chapter, you know. Well, it's, it's, that's a right way to think about it. You know, but why does God do it? Why does God chastise? He doesn't chastise unchristians. He doesn't chastise unbelievers. He chastises believers. Sometimes it even makes you feel like you're having a harder time than, than those who don't know the Lord. Psalm 73 deals with something like that. You know, we, we think of the prosperity of the wicked. We think something's wrong. Why are, we, why are we serving God if this is all we get? We get chastisement and difficulty. But why does God chastise his children? And chastises every son he receives, it says, for our good that we may what? Share in his holiness. Us sharing in God's holiness uh, by the work of his spirit is good for us. It is the best thing for us, the most needful thing for us, and the fear of God will keep us walking in that way by God's grace through faith. So may the Lord himself, as always, work in us what is pleasing in his sight by his Holy Spirit that we might learn more and more to walk in our daily lives in the fear of God, as Paul says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God and to the glory of God. Amen.